kind of a loud clap to bring it in. Feeling a little drowsy, though. I had a decent amount of coffee, but... Yeah, that's where I'm at. But I wasn't drowsy for this podcast, because I'm always excited to hang with Charles Eisenstein. Um, I've been in his presence uh, two or three times now. This was... This was the best by far. It was the first time we got the podcast together face-to-face. And I've been following Charles for years. He's an author of of several incredible books. Um, The Yoga of Eating was his first. Sacred Economics. The Ascent of Humanity, which I still need to read, actually. I've got that on Audible. And uh, many of you would know this from The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, something that Aubrey and I have been talking about for years now as one of the the most transcendent and and informative and special books that a person could read to really reimagine how do we want to shape things as as the old starts to crumble. Uh, Climate, A New Story is another great book that also reimagines the the climate scenario and... uh, um, really alludes to the benefits of regenerative agriculture and a number of other things. Um, a phenomenal book. In his latest, The Coronation. The Coronation are, is a bunch of his essays from the COVID moment. So from the COVID moment onward, uh, all those essays are in this book. And if you haven't followed Charles' blog, I highly recommend doing so now. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. You just it's donation based, so you can you throw them a dollar a month if you want, um, 10, 20, doesn't matter. It's worth it. It's worth saying, here, take take this little bit of cheese and I'll read as you write, because that's how powerful Charles' writing is. He is one of the most brilliant speakers, thinkers, thought leaders, whatever you, you want to call that, that I've come across. And same with Aubrey, one of the same thing for him. You know, he that's how how we feel about Charles. Uh, we hold him in the highest regard. And he has really helped me. I talked about it on our first podcast, but I know I bring it back up on this one. He's helped me to not feel insane in the last two years. And that's that's pretty fucking priceless, in my opinion. Um, absolutely love this guy. You guys are going to love this podcast. Um, you know, honestly, <laughs> I could have just kept him there for three hours. And likely I should do that at some point. But um, Charles is a guy I would do three hours with. He is, he is that dialed in and um, really offers so much. Every time I, I podcast with him, I learn so much. And it, and it is very uh, reassuring and grounding in um, the way forward. You know, I think that's really what it's about. Where's my compass? What is the North Star guiding me um, through the maze of the fucking weird and wacky world that we're all living in right now? And I think Charles um, does such a an excellent job of helping us to hone that within ourselves. You can support this podcast by sharing it with friends. This one I'm sure is going to get shared a lot, but that shouldn't stop you from sharing it. <laughs> everybody, everybody should share it. Listen to this podcast. It's dope. And then share it. That helps a lot. Um, leave a five-star rating with one or two ways the show has helped you out in life. That helps a lot. And of course, support our sponsors because they make the show financially possible. I've hand-selected each and every one of these sponsors that's on the show today. They are incredible companies to help you optimize your life inside and out. And um, many of them support, you know, Paleo Valley supports a better, more regenerative world through regenerative farming practices that heals the environment, heals the soil, and heals our bodies in turn. The as above, so below is found uh, in no, no easier place than in food, in my opinion. 
one of the main issues people come across is what is the right food for me? And without actually taking a look at what's happening on the inside of your body, it's pretty hard to determine that. Blood work used to be the best way to go about this because you could look at something like hemoglobin A1C and you might say, shit, man, my carbohydrate intake has been really piss poor the last few months and it shows for that high um, hemoglobin A1C number. But now there's something even better. You can track in real time what's happening after every single meal you eat. You can take a photo of the meal just so you know, like, oh shit, yeah, that was a plate of rice with uh, a little bit of curry on the side, but it was mostly rice and my body didn't react too well to that. I had Dan and Kara on this podcast from NutriSense back in the day, and I recently had Kara back on, and we deep dove all things metabolic health, um, what it means to attain metabolic health, and how devastating it can be if we don't have metabolic flexibility and metabolic health in our bodies. You know, the root of all diseases, inflammation, and where that starts is through a breakdown of the system. And a lot of us have been cramming processed foods into our mouths every two to three hours since we were a kid. And now at 30, 40 years old, that can catch up with us. So the, major, the majority of chronic illnesses stem from an inability to manage your blood glucose levels. If you know how your body uniquely responds to different foods, sleep, stress, and exercise, you can make changes to achieve your health goals, from managing weight to optimizing longevity. We refer to our product as the NutriSense CGM program. The CGM provides real-time feedback from your body. Each CGM lasts 14 days. Each subscription plan includes one month of free support from a registered dietitian. This is huge. NutriSense dietitians will help you identify what you should be paying attention to to achieve your health goals. They will hold your hand on your health journey. If you're already knowledgeable in this space, they will be able to provide more advanced tips and recommendations. Our dietitians will help you make long-term sustainable changes. Putting on a CGM is painless. The CGM program also comes with an app, which helps you to track your data, understand your glucose trends, log meals, see the macros breakdown, and much, much more. The app will give you an overall score for each of your meals based on your body's responses. NutriSense also provides a private Facebook group for members where you can find support from other members and learn about their experience from the program. Check it out. You're going to go to NutriSense.io slash Kyle. That is N-U-T-R-I-S-E-N-S-E dot I-O slash K-Y-L-E. And then use the code Kyle for $30 off any subscription to a CGM program. CGMs are continuous glucose monitors, and this is one of the best ways we can utilize tech to actually understand what is the best, the best response? What is the best feel that I have from this? How long does my energy last? Can I go four or five hours without eating and still be fine to, to rock and roll and to do the damn thing, whether it's parenting or starting a business or running a podcast, any of the things you're doing is if food keeps circling back into your periphery every couple hours, you have not mastered this yet. So this is one of the ways we can deep dive that. NutriSense.io slash Kyle. We're also brought to you by my friends at PaleoValley.com. PaleoValley has been sourcing the cleanest and best in regenerative agriculture for some time, as well as some of the best in organic foods to make superfood bars, as well as a 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef sticks. Many on the market claim grass-fed, but they're actually finished on grains. They use beef sourced from small domestic farms in the U.S. They use real organic spices to flavor their beef sticks versus conventional spices sprayed with pesticides or natural flavors often made from GMO corn. 
They ferment their sticks, which creates natural occurring probiotics, which are great for gut health. This is a huge one. I talk about this a lot. When you dehydrate foods, it is harder because your body has to rehydrate them. Usually that's in the gut. And if you're dehydrated, like most people are, you're probably not going to have a whole lot of resources to help you move that through. By having probiotics in there and hydrating appropriately, your body is actually going to help move that through very easy. And you'll notice there's less gas. There's less any of these things that you might find from eating, you know, store-bought beef jerky. These 100% grass-fed beef sticks have higher levels of omega-3 fatty acids, vitamins and minerals, glutathione, which is the nature's master antioxidant, CLA, conjugated linoleic acid, which is the fat that burns fat, more bioavailable protein. They're also keto-friendly and a great protein-rich snack to grab on the go. These guys refuse to cut corners. They prioritize health over profit, and they use conscientious processing and manufacturing. My apocalypse pantry is stocked full of this stuff. And even if I didn't think that grocery stores were going to close or some shit was going to go down, I would still have a big-ass supply of this stuff because every time we go on a road trip, every time we fly, every time I leave the house, I've got a couple sticks in my bag because you never know when you're going to get hungry. And I'd want to eat clean when I'm hungry. I don't want to be like, oh, man, I should just grab this in and out. No, no, none of that. I got my beef stick here. It's 100%. And it's helping the planet, too. It's not just something that's going to help me. It's helping the planet, too. So I love these guys. Love what they're about. Paleovalley.com. Use discount code KYLE for 15% off. Next on the list is equipfoods.com slash KKP. Equip was founded in 2016 by Dr. Anthony Gustin, also been on the podcast, because he felt that people should be able to get exactly what they need in supplements and nothing else. No additives, chemicals, fillers, or other junk. We're proud to provide some of the shortest ingredient lists in the supplement industry made from 100% real foods. Their best-selling product is Prime Protein, which is a grass-fed beef protein powder that tastes like dessert. 4.9 stars with over 700 reviews. Prime Protein is absolutely exceptional. They have a chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry flavor. It tastes amazing. It does not taste like meat, even though that might be cool. I don't know. <laughs> I've never had a meat shake. Um, but your, your standard chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry, they're going to taste absolutely phenomenal. One scoop of Prime Protein is equivalent to four ounces of grass-fed beef. Prime protein is less likely to cause gastrointestinal problems like whey. Prime protein contains collagen and gelatin that repairs your joints and soft tissues like plant protein will not. Prime protein does not have any added chemicals, fillers, binding agents, or artificial coloring or sweeteners. Their beef protein is made the same way that bone broth is made, low and slow, heating to preserve the nutrition. No chemical processing whatsoever. Prime protein is paleo and keto approved, and it tastes like dessert not beef. 30 servings are in the bag. Um, people ask me all the time, how do, you, how do you use this stuff? Do you take protein powder? When do you take it? I lift about two days a week right now. That's been my most consistent lifting since, well, since easy strength, which was five days a week, but I don't have the time for five days a week. So I'm back on two days a week. I supplement with protein either during or after my workout. And that helps me recover quicker. You can mix it in anything though. If you make oatmeal or, or baked cookies, whatever you're going to do, you can mix this protein in and actually make your body absorb more protein. You're getting steak with that. It's not going to cause GI issues like the whey does or some of the other protein powders that are out there. Even plant-based protein can cause some gut, gut issues. If you're eating 40 grams of protein from peas, that's just the nature of the game. Our body's not eating for, used to getting 40 grams of protein from peas. Uh, but we are used to eating steak. And we are used to eating, consuming animals that, that were of nature and not detoured from people. 
And this is one of the ways that we can get that into our body. You can throw it into your morning coffee and it's going to taste great. And you can just throw it in a post-workout shake or anything that you want to make with other fruits and veggies and whatever you want to do to make it good. It's going to be good. I promise. Pure Wad pre-workout is the best natural pre-workout on the market. It's made from real sourced food, including coconut water powder, green tea, and fruit powders. There's no artificial junk or harmful additives. It has 200 milligrams of clean, slow-release caffeine from green tea in each scoop. That's a good amount, guys. <laughs> Let's just be honest here. If I have a big coffee, I'm probably not going to take the Pure Wad right now. I'm probably not going to take it today. Um, but on days where I have a small amount of coffee or say, I say, fuck coffee, I got a, I got a morning workout. I'm just going to have this Pure Wad pre-workout. And that provides me with a good dose of clean, slow-release caffeine from green tea. It's got four grams of creatine monohydrate, which is a whopper, two and a half grams of beta alanine. This is the stuff that makes you tingle but it's also the stuff that gives you a lot of endurance. One and a half grams of L-citrulline malate, two grams of L-leucine, two grams of L-isoleucine, and one gram of L-valine and a gram of coconut water powder, 500 migs of L-arginine, AKG, two to one. This is the stuff that gives you a pump. So when Arnold's talking about coming on stage, coming at the women, coming everywhere I go, that's what he's talking about, the pump. This gives you a good pump. And more than just getting a good pump and looking a certain way, you're improving blood flow. You're improving your body's ability to dilate and constrict. And in that dilation, you're getting more blood flow, more nutrients, more oxygen sent to the muscle. That means better endurance and faster recovery on the back end of that. 500 milligrams of L-carnitine is going to help mobilize fat. What does that mean? That means your body is going to be able to burn fat for fuel. Ketosis is going to help orchestrate that. So you're using two fuel systems while you work out. There's only 20 calories per serving. It's less than a gram of carbs and over four grams of protein. Uh, these guys make clean carbs, the sweet potato powder. Again, everything these guys make is from a whole food source and then smart sleep. So they have a long list of awesome stuff. The pre-workout and the, the prime protein are the things that I take on a regular basis. Equipfoods.com slash KKP. That is E-Q-U-I-P-F-O-O-D-S.com slash KKP. And then remember, KKP at checkout for 20% off everything in their store. Last but not least, we're brought to you by Lucy.co. Lucy.co was started by a few Caltech scientists, and it is just incredible. Look, we're all adults here, and I know some of us choose to use nicotine to relax, focus, or just unwind after a long day. Lucy is a modern oral nicotine company that makes nicotine gum, lozenges, and pouches for adults who are looking for the best, most responsible way to consume their nicotine. It's a new year. Why not start it out by switching to a new nicotine product that you can feel good about? If you enjoy using nicotine, you should definitely check out Lucy's products at lucy.co. That's L-U-C-Y dot C-O and use promo code KKP at checkout. Uh, Warning, this product does contain nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. We got to mention that. Uh, Remember, if you're interested in a better way to use nicotine, visit lucy.co and be sure to use that promo code KKP. This is Leaps and bounds, one of the best nootropics on the planet. It stacks well with all nootropics. Um, so no matter what your favorite is, Purpose Plus or anything else, this goes hand in hand with it. They piggyback on each other and really increase uh, the benefit. So love these guys. Check it out, lucy.co, KKP at checkout, 20% off anything and everything. And without further ado, my brother, Charles Eisenstein. I like your uh, product placement on your t-shirt there. 
I was like, what, what, what shirt am I going to wear today? And I was like, I think, I think Charles will appreciate this. You know, it's just a, it's not a brand or a logo or anything. It's just, but it is something of significance to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I dig it. Um, you are traveling around right now because you have, I believe it's for this book, right? Doing some podcast not, runs. Um, it's not so purposeful. It's just, I, I came out here for for an event, the Emerge Gathering. It's called. That's right. Yeah. And uh, Schmachtenberger will be there, and right. a bunch of other cool guys. I think Jamie will. Yeah, yeah, that's rad. Um, can you talk about that, or is it secret? I don't know. I mean, I I don't even know what's happening there. It's a certain scene, I guess. You know, like those guys are typically associated with the existential risk community, which you know, I mean, I could talk about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's. With the, you know, between the conversations I've had and, and with you and with other people within our group, we know there's certain risks on the table. And that's um, clearly outlined over the way the last two and a half years have gone. I think um, my listeners are, are fairly tuned into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is funny to try to, to, to really picture, you know, all these different things. You know, the meta crisis is, is all the crises lumped into one. You know, the nuclear threat, the... Right. The, the environmental threats, all these things, and then really try to boil that down. I, I imagine they're going to be really interesting conversations, but it is, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a funny topic because it's like, for me, it's, it seems a little bit outside the reach mm-hmm. of like what is within my control to participate in. You know, if you look at any of those particular things, there are very practical steps you can take towards the better world. Yeah. Right? And I think that's, that's kind of usually what I look for as opposed to the grand overarching theme of doom and anything like that. Not that that's the way they're going to take it, but yeah. Yeah. That, that, that I don't know. I mean, I, I ran into some of the people who were going and like a lot of young guys, you know, um, and they just like seemed really heart centered and stuff. And like, so I think it's going to be good. Cool. Yeah. Hell yeah. Super good. Um, well, let's, let's, I know we talked last time uh, on the podcast before this book was out, but many of these had already been written, if not all of them. Um, your essays, do you call them essays? Yeah. Yeah. Your essays yeah. that have, that have come out, um, really th- since the beginning of the COVID era. Um, if people missed that, talk a little bit about your progression. Cause I think we kind of started off in the same boat, like shit, this is the real deal. We're in trouble. All right. Do whatever's necessary. And then, you know, slowly over time, uh, that narrative started to fall away. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, at the, at the outset, I was, like, I was never frightened of COVID. Yeah. You know, even, even if, like, the, if it had been as serious as they were trying to make it be, it's still, like, on the historical scale of plagues, you know, it wasn't that serious. And it soon became apparent that it wasn't going to be, like, from, from the standpoint of, of public health, that wasn't for me the main point of the crisis. It was our response to it. And what I saw unfolding pretty much was my worst nightmare come true, which I'd been been warning against for quite a while. Like, like what happens when a society elevates security in all of its forms to the status of a god? We saw that after 9-11, uh, we, and we see it during COVID. I mean, it, it, it's... It, permeates our entire political system 
It's all about safety, all about security, risk minimization. And when you live like that, you're not actually fully living. Like any, any one of us is going to take risks in order to be fully alive. And that's why the, like the whole idea of existential risk in a lot of these conversations, usually it's around climate change, you know, ecological collapse, could be nuclear Armageddon, um, you know, runaway AI, uh, like the, the nanobot apocalypse. Like there's all of these different <laughs> scenarios, you know. But I'm just not willing to live my life according to what do I have to do to survive? Because I'm not going to survive my life. And ultimately, our civilization will perish as well. And ultimately, our planet will perish too. Like, this is, this is one of the root causes of the current unfolding social catastrophe that began with COVID. Well, it didn't really begin with COVID, but it's basically our denial of death. Once we pretend that we can be immortal, maybe through technology or like, it's even irrational, but like, let's keep it safe. And then what? You know? So for me, the whole point is how beautifully and how well we can live, not whether we're going to survive forever. But paradoxically, the more well and the more beautifully we live, ultimately, like the more secure we become too. Not as the goal, but like, like who are like the healthy, thriving people you meet? They're not the ones that are enclosing themselves in a bubble and obsessing about their health all the time. You know, they're, they, they're never actually that healthy. This, it's the people who are, you know, kind of not so uptight, you know? And they're enjoying life and they're having rich relationships and like that's, that's being alive. Yeah, they didn't forget yeah. how to play, right? Right. They can, and they, in a King Warrior Magician Lover, they talk about how the warrior is balanced by the lover. Mm-hmm. You know, if the lawyers, if the, if the warrior is too strict and too disciplined, right, then he forgets the joy of life. He forgets what he's fighting for in the first place, right? You know, so yeah. the lover is that balancing act. And if the lover is too, you know, freely experiencing all the things, the 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 what do they say? The the addict is the archetype of one of the shadows of the lover, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. the Casanova, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the Don Juan style, where it just jumps from woman to woman, never really. Right. Engaging in the full exquisiteness of relationship, right? Yeah. So the discipline then balances that. But yeah, I think about things like that. There is... um, That's a profound book, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Just incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, fundamentally I, changed the way I looked at it. It's my so humiliating, yeah. you know? <laughs> when you read it, I'm like, every single shadow archetype, every single immature archetype. Yep. Yep. Shit. Yep. Oh, yep. man. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, high chair tyrant. Yeah. Man. Okay. Yeah. How, how... I know when I was a kid, but... Oh, 20s? Yep. Mm-hmm. Early 30s? Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the inventory on that one is is a tough pill to swallow, but definitely worth it. Um, that seems to be a big one, and I think for for the initiated, and that could be through a number of avenues, as you know and discuss at length. Um, when one faces their own death, either through a rite of passage or through you know um, any form of ritual upgrade that is going to bring about the possibility and potential of death. Mm-hmm. I think um, Maladoma Patrice Somme said in of Water mm-hmm. and Spirit, if death isn't on the table, it's not actually a rite of passage. It can be an initiation of sorts, but it's not an authentic rite of passage. When you go through that, you face your own death. And it right. can happen through fasting, no food, no water. It can happen from dancing until you can collapse. Many, many different ways. Um, the right set and setting with the right amount of psychedelics can do it. 
What do you think gets people to the place? I want to talk transhumanism and I want to continue on this death thread, but what do you think is going to get the masses to shift so that they can remember it's about living, not about avoiding death? I'm, I'm not so interested anymore in what's going to make the masses shift or what solution can scale. Not because I don't want the masses to shift, not because I've given up on humanity, but because I, I'm more and more I'm aware of being part of a process that's unimaginably vast and mysterious that I don't have to know how. Like, I don't have to come up with a plan um, and sift through my various life choices based on what's going to have the maximum impact because there's because this mystery is at work and really and really what i need to know is what is mine to do in any given situation and to tune into that with more and more sensitivity so that i can be an instrument of this inconceivable process of transformation that i sense humanity is going through right now people are waking up in various ways all over the place and when i go into my rational mind with its legacy programs, it still seems hopeless. But I know better on some level. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to your question, but no, I know I think, that- I think yeah. you, it was, you answered yeah. the question that it wasn't a great question. And it's actually where I've, where I've kind of fallen, uh, even just for the sense of the what is mine. You know, it's not mine to save everybody. It's not mine to, to figure out- Yeah. Uh, and that's what good, man, because a lot of damage has been done in this world by people trying to save the world. Yeah. You know, and right now, a lot of damage is being done by the people trying to save the world. They become, you know, population control people. They become, you know, like a lot of this geoengineering stuff, like where they get the idea that the one, this is one of the meta patterns of our society that is causing a lot of damage, that there is the one thing to go to war against that will solve all of our problems. So ecological collapse, like tree death all over the Northeast, like all these one by one, species by species, the trees are dying. What's causing it? Well, let's find one thing that is amenable to control-based solutions that we're already familiar with. Oh, okay, carbon dioxide. Now we can geoengineer global warming, right? Now, now we can apply our familiar tools to dominate something. And, and all the while full of, you know, self-righteousness that I'm saving the world. And this is the most important thing humans have ever done. It's not that different in mentality from, you know, the COVID totalitarians. Not that different in mentality from Hitler, you know? I mean, he thought he was saving the world, or at least the Aryan race. Like, he was full of righteousness. So... I'm happy to hear that you're not, you know, and like, because <laughs> yeah. the antidote to that is, and you said what's going to wake us up, you know, um, to the reality of death. Like paradoxically, it is reality that, that includes death, that punctures the bubbles, the artificial realities, the pretenses that we've created. Um, and that does lead to the metaverse kind of stuff, you know, like, yeah. The, yeah. the process you're speaking of first when you when you described yeah uh, that's good man because a lot of damage has been done in this world by people trying to save the world yeah you know and right now a lot of damage is being done by the people trying to save the world they become you know population control people they become 
you know, like a lot of this geoengineering stuff, like where they get the idea that the one, this is one of the meta patterns of our society that is causing a lot of damage, that there is the one thing to go to war against that will solve all of our problems. So ecological collapse, like tree death all over the Northeast, like all these one by one, species by species, the trees are dying. What's causing it? Well, let's find one thing that is amenable to control-based solutions that we're already familiar with. Oh, okay, carbon dioxide. Now we can geoengineer global warming, right? Now, now we can apply our familiar tools to dominate something. And, and all the while full of you know, self-righteousness that I'm saving the world. And this is the most important thing humans have ever done. It's not that different in mentality from you know, the COVID totalitarians. Not that different in mentality from Hitler, you know? I mean, he thought he was saving the world, or at least the Aryan race. Like, he was full of righteousness. So I'm happy to hear that you're not, you know? And like, because <laughs> yeah. the antidote to that is, and you said what's going to wake us up, you know, um, to the reality of death. Like, paradoxically, it is reality that, that includes death, that punctures the bubbles the artificial realities, the pretenses that we've created. Um, and that does lead to the metaverse kind of stuff, you know, like, yeah, like the, yeah. the process you're speaking of first, when you do, when you described the process um, that you can sense in it with an inner knowing, have you seen the movie Dune? Yeah. So Dune, they talk mm -hmm. about, there's a scene with um, one of the guys in his dreams where he, he says, life is, is and I'm paraphrasing, sorry, I haven't seen it in a while, but life is a continual ongoing process in which if we surrender to the flow of, we come into harmony with. And when we resist, we right. become out of harmony. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I fully sense that. I fully, we had uh, Michael Mead on recently and he was uh -huh. very much speaking into like the mass scale initiation that humanity is going through. Mm -hmm. And it is a true initiation. He knew Maladoma, um, mm -hmm. you know, who recently passed away, but he said, this is, you know, it's a real initiation because not everyone's going to make it through this. Right. We will see death on a large right. scale. Yeah, like none of these weekend initiation programs, you know, where you, <laughs> where you sign, where like you sign a, where, where there's like legal liability, like in your, like your waiver, the whole thing is contained in, well, you're going to be safe. You know, a, a real initiation, you're not going to be safe. You probably won't die, but you might. It's for real. And people are so craving actually reality. And, and that's why these hyper-stimulating, whether it's films or video games or virtual realities, they never actually satisfy the true desire. They, they compensate for the loss of real engagement with life with ever in more intense stimulation, but they don't meet the real need. Anything that, that, compensates for the real need but doesn't actually meet it is addictive. And that's why, you know, not just like, you know, video games and, and entertainment and stuff, the internet is addictive, but um, like all of the fake reality that characterizes modern life, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I see your, your dad, I see this 
with the kids. It's not like we've got a screen in front of their face all day long, but you throw an iPad on for 30 minutes of Dora uh, while you're making dinner. So you, cause there's only right. one parent in the house and it's, right. you know, and then the second it goes off, it's total meltdown. It's like, like the dog just died, you know, like that. Right. It's such a strong hook. And when you see it, you know, in a young being, you're like, Oh shit, there's a level of attachment to this thing. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not just a 30 yeah. minute Dora show. Right. Like it's more than that. And I think back, I mean, I was, when I was young, the original NES had just come out. And I remember um, one of our family friends hooked us up as a family and my mom loved it. She'd play Burger Time and Super Mario and, and mm -hmm. all that stuff. And I had my own favorite games. I pretty much stayed addicted to video games from four or five whenever we got it. I'd play the maximum allowed time. Mm -hmm. You're allowed an hour. I'd be there for 61 minutes until they turned it off. Um, all the way through college. And it was only when I got into fighting where I realized like all the time I invested there is not time you get back. There's zero translation from the fake reality into the real one. You know, and some people will argue now like, well, you can make money and you got to, uh, whatever the, the Twitter video thing is for, for video games, you know, those kind of things like, oh, right. you can become a star, like a YouTube. Yeah. You can stream your, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, come on. Isn't that, if there's any sign of a, of a degenerate culture, could it be anything but like, People watching other people play video games. They, and they don't want to play. South Park did an episode on that. He's like, no, yeah. he doesn't want to play the game. He wants to watch this guy play the game. Yeah. PewDiePie. <laughs> it's yeah. so ridiculous. I was like, what yeah. are they? I know these guys are really intelligent. And they're always making fun of stuff that's actually happened. And then sure enough, like that, I was like, but that's a thing? Like mm -hmm. it blew me away. I was like, how is that a thing? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, like, I don't feel like contemptuous about it. It's, it's... It's like you were saying, like, like, you know, you're making dinner and the kid is bored and it's almost an irresistible temptation to stick him in front of a screen. And that's not like your fault. You're in a almost impossible situation because ideally that kid is going to be running around with another pack of kids outside and like doesn't even want to come home for dinner yeah, until he gets so hungry. That, for yeah. Yep. yeah, that's how most people grew up for most of history. So once we're in this situation, then like the situation that we're in generates all of these debates that seem really real, but are actually just a reflection of, of circumstances that we kind of take for granted. And one of them is the single family home, the division of labor that dissociates us from place and from community. These are the, the deep patterns that make it pretty much impossible to meet a lot of authentic human needs. Yeah. Let, let's yeah. um let's dive in a little bit of, you know, you recently had, I didn't quite finish it, but it's brilliant as all of them are, your recent essay on transhumanism and the metaverse. And I do want to thank you because like there's things where I'm like, please talk about the World Economic Forum and then boom, uh -huh. it comes out, you know, and right. that was so great. The tongue in cheek, you know, <laughs> I loved that. Um, and I've been, I've been waiting for something like this, you know, because it's like, you know, you read, I remember reading um, Sapiens, Homo Deus, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and I thought they were all great books. Um, and then I've seen videos with, with you know, Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's full on into transhumanism, and he's full on. And there's other videos, you know, that pop up if you keep watching of a guy talking about we can engineer humans with CRISPR to half the size so they'll have less of a carbon footprint. And like a three foot tall human. That's where they want to take this. Like mm. this is, this is, it's 
it's like fictional almost to the point where it's those guys ridiculous. wouldn't do too well in the UFC though. Would no, they? I don't think they would, <laughs> and that would make very good compliant society. You know, if if the uh, if, if a certain percent of the population did not decide right. to to downsize. Yeah, so there's a there's a lot of of deep un, unexamined assumptions in all of this all of this transhumanist ideology, which is really an extension of the ideology of progress, which says that. Basically, the narrative is human beings started out helpless and frail, um, ignorant, superstitious, in a state of nature, struggling to survive. But thanks to our big brains, which differentiate us from all other animals, we began to rise above nature and harness natural forces and conquer the, conquer the other, domesticate the wild, um, and conquer one frontier after another to become the Lord's and masters of nature, and we're going to continue this conquest. So someday we will transcend all natural limitations, move beyond Earth, conquer even death itself through fusion with um, silicon and robotics. So this is this trajectory um, is part of a narrative that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, if not longer. So people like Yuval Harari are merely um, eloquent proponents of this ideology. And from within their assumption set, everything they say is indubitable. But what... So I, I in in that in the essay you referenced, I, I I look at some of the things that they that are taken for granted in this techno triumphalist narrative, and you know one of them. I mean, I, I'm not even sure where to begin. Um, I guess one of them would be that we can. So one of them, okay, is is like the basic role of humans on Earth. This this would draw from the idea of the 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 more we can reduce our impact on the planet, the better off the planet will be, which buys into the assumption that we are fundamentally a burden on the planet, which is part of the assumption that we are fundamentally separate from nature. So we we we. Having othered nature, we treat it as a source of resources and a waste dump. And if you take that for granted, they take that relationship for granted, then of course, the fewer of us, the better. So there's one aspect of transhumanism, which is population reduction. And all this hype about the population, you know, overburdening the planet. Not that there's no truth in it, but right now we face population crash, uh, which I've been writing about for a while now, you know, like um, we're, we're going to have peak population sooner than, than most people think, like maybe even in the next 20 years. Um, but this idea that we are fundamentally a burden on the planet, we are not natural. Like, where does that assumption come from? What if, what if we ha- had a world where our, where we understood our purpose as to participate in the unfolding of beauty and life on earth. So it's not leave no trace as the ideal, it's leave a beautiful trace. And there are people 
this isn't just a philosophy. You know, there are people restoring ecosystems and restoring soil, like practicing regenerative agriculture, which is yet another word that's being hijacked by corporations, but like natural. Yeah. <laughs> I mean what natural but, but, means eventually. Yeah. Or anyone who's like building a temple. Like if you look at traditional Taoist temples, that would be a really good example. Where it's not where where beauty isn't something that you can abstract from the surroundings. But the temple is seen as a gift to the place. And it is erected with with deep sensitivity to all the other beings around it. Like, what if we built our entire civilization on that principle? We would no longer be a burden to the planet. We would be like the the next explosion of life. Like the planet would be more alive because of us. So that's that's one of these, one of the um, threads of a new mythology that I see emerging in our time that really, where, where we no longer repudiate nature and we no longer conceive of progress as transcending nature. And so part of that would be to transcend death. So a lot of this is motivated by a misunderstanding of who we are. Like if you ex- ac- accept the uh, modern scientific doctrine of beingness, of self, like you are... It was in one of the articles I quoted in the in the in the essay, um, an ape-brained meat sack. Mm-hmm. Like that's what you are. And as soon as the ape-brained meat sack dies, your consciousness is snuffed out like a candle flame. Like that's what I grew up. That was the religion I grew up in, you know, like rational atheism. So if you accept that, then death is the ultimate catastrophe. It's the total annihilation of consciousness. And of course, you'd try to do everything you can to prevent that from happening. And your dream would be to preserve your consciousness forever inside, you know, a digital playground. Now, I think that the digital playground would very soon turn into a digital hell because you've replaced the infinity of the real world with the finitude of a programmed world where everything you do is still in the matrix. And, and everything is controlled by something. You know, that's not actually, I mean, that would be hell for me. Mm-hmm. So, so, and people experience this hell. Like even when, even each step we take toward that technotopian dream actually makes people more and more depressed, more and more addicted, more and more anxious. It's like in the essay, I, I, I compared it to chasing a mirage. It's always on the horizon. And we haven't gotten there yet. I mean, come on, Kyle. Like we have, you know, genetic engineering. We have nanotechnology. We have artificial intelligence. We have universal surveillance. You know, we should have eliminated all of our problems by now. We should be able to tweak the brain chemistry so you never suffer and meet every bodily need. And we've come a long way to do that. Why aren't we any happier? Well, it must be because we haven't finished the job. And it just is a few more inventions away. And then finally, when every object is part of the internet of things. And every physiological process is under constant monitoring and there's micro pumps inside your body to, to tweak whatever levels of, of hormones and peptides. Then you'll be permanently happy. Like it's always on the horizon. Yeah. 
Thank yeah, you for indulging great. my rant no, there. I loved that. I loved yeah. that. I was like, God, keep going, keep going, keep going. There's a lot I want to jump in on. Um, you know, the the fundamental idea that we're a burden is is layered. And then I know you've written about this before, but it is layered in everything. It's it's the the idea that human beings are a virus, Mr. Anderson. Right? Yeah. Like that same thing, right? And that and that's that's not the case when we remember the gift of reality when we remember the oneness of our interconnectivity. And, um, if you've experienced that, it's absolutely undeniable, you know, it's, and it's more undeniable than all of the facts that you were brought up with on why it ends and the world goes black. Right. Which is (laughs) once you've experienced that there is no, no, these are still some pretty good arguments. It's like all that shit vanishes instantly because it's, it's almost like a memory Aubrey talks a lot about that, the gnosis, like it's beyond belief. You know it in every cell of your body. I think about things like that. And, and again, I'm not sure that there's even a need for others to track what I've tracked and try to figure that out for themselves. People are in their own ways, you know, coming to deeper levels of truth and understanding. Um, I think you had spoken with Aubrey about uh, one of the podcasts about transhumanism and he brought up Ray Kurzweil wanting to see his father, you know, and, and um, that is a noble pursuit, you know, but then it's like, just drink some ayahuasca, you know, like that dude, right. there are ways to connect to your dad right now. Right. If you, you know? accept that, that consciousness isn't just an epiphenomenon of the ape-brained meat sack, but that, that time and space are themselves, I mean, like, like you can, yeah, you can, contact your father, like all of your ancestors are still present in you. Everything that's ever happened is because we're not these separate selves. Like that, that's what it comes down to. And we sure see like, you know, it's not, I don't want to like make it seem like this is just a bad idea that we got because our entire surroundings are yelling at us constantly. You are a separate self from our physical infrastructure to the family structures of today, to the economy you know, which is constantly saying more for you is less for me. We're in competition with each other. We are separate. If we're not separate, then more for you is more for me. Potentially we're in it together. Yeah. I think that, that, that last point you just made is, is pertinent when we talk about regenerative agriculture and things like that, because it's like, if it's good for me, it should also be good for the planet. You know, the as above, so below works in harmony with that. So if I am healing the soil, that's making better grass. That's making a better animal. That's making me stronger. And even if I'm just vegan or vegetarian and I'm doing it not in a monocrop right. way, but, you know, with plant and animal husbandry still, that's going to be far. I'm going to be a better person, period. I'm not just going to have a better body. I'm going to be right. a better person. I'm going to think right. more clearly. I'm going to be softer. I'm going to have a better sense of direction in how I manage the stressors of life. Like it's, it's that good. big of an impact. Right. Yeah. And like even to spin it out even more, like you take good care of the soil, um, you take good care of the plants, then the water, um, instead of running off, it soaks down into the aquifers and springs bubble up. And that draws more biodiversity. And after 10 or 20 iterations, there's more songbirds there and you're seeing more animals. And you realize that this is something I I experience a lot when I'm in nature, that there's some kind of nourishment that I receive from seeing a diversity 
of animals and hearing a diversity of sounds that makes me feel whole, makes me feel present, that I just cannot feel when I'm sitting in front of a screen. So, so this, is, this is one of the things that punctures the illusion uh, that, our, that this whole system that meets our quantifiable needs for whatever, calories, you know, for, for, for all the things we can measure, actually meets our real needs. All you have to do is, is experience the real needs being met to understand how impoverished we are and therefore how addicted we are. Like, I mean, you've probably had these experiences, you know, like even like eye-gazing experiences, you know, where there's no way after that that you want to go shopping. Like (laughs) you feel full. Yeah, you're full. You know, your needs are met and it didn't cost a lot of money. Like this is the thing, like this, the irony of chasing the mirage. If we only stopped, we'd realize like the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you know, it's already here. So... Yeah, there's a there's a nourishment that comes from the world that we create when we devote ourselves to the world. And there's no substitute for it. Yeah, there can't be. There's a couple of things that I wanted to to um toss in. The the right when I was reading the the article or the the essay and you talked about you used the term hell. That was my biggest journey of last year was with Silawaska. And it oscillated between, and it, it's not binary, obviously, but but it was oscillating between a return to nature versus a deep dive into the metaverse. And the way I described it was hell. It was like eternal separation. It was, and I've never believed in any of that from my upbringing as the truth of what source is and what we are. Eternal damnation, none of that. I don't think that that any you know apparent archetype whatever up in the up in the sky would damn anything that it's created, and at the same time, if we do have free will, we could select that for ourselves, and that in that selection of a binary world, uh, we wouldn't have the synchronicities. We wouldn't get the God nod, you know, where you're just like, holy shit, you know, that kind of moment. Right. It doesn't exist in there because it hasn't been accounted for, and any random thing would actually be random. It would be a coincidence. It wouldn't be um, the divine connection that we all have. And so I wanted to tell this story that recently happened on the ranch just a couple of weeks ago. I was out with uh, the kids and we blew up a bunch of paddle boards. And my buddy who's, who's helping on the farm, Eric, was out there with his kids. So there's a good group of us and they're all in that big pond where the Maloka's going. And I, I was playing for a while and then I was like, man, I'm kind of tired. I'm going to meditate for a little bit. I don't think I'll have time later. And I looked out and we had, you know, a couple dads out there. I was like, all right, we're good. I'm good here. They're safe. So I sat at the, at the edge of the shore. My waist is in the water. My, just my knees are poked out of it. And uh, I started meditating and I dropped in and it was a hot day, but the water's nice and cool. So I was balanced. And um, I was appreciating all the sounds. And I was appreciating the fact that the last time I tried to meditate there, I kept getting nailed from mosquitoes. It was like yeah. closer to sunset. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe this is good to come out during the heat. And, um, close my eyes, mantra, mantra, drop right in. And I hear this, and I was like, ah, and I opened my eyes and it's a, it looked like a half bee, half yellow jacket thing. You know, it wasn't like a wasp where I'd be like, shit, I don't want this guy landing on me, but, uh, and he comes over, he lands right on my left knee. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you're okay. I'm okay. You're okay. You're not going to sting me. 
and I just drop right back in. And then something pries my eyes open to the left, and I see a four-foot-long water moccasin swimming slowly towards me, mm-hmm. also known as the cottonmouth. Yeah. And I'm looking right at it. And it was almost like this bee yellow jacket thing prepped me because I had the same thought. Are you okay? Yeah, you're okay. And doesn't break eye contact. This thing had both its eyes locked onto my eyes, swimming very slowly on the shore, goes around my left leg and rests its head on my right knee. Doesn't break eye contact. And I'm just sucked into this thing like, wow. whoa, whoa, whoa. And then it swims off. And like that, medicine of that experience, it doesn't exist when you're not there to experience it. You know, like the ability to set myself into that position where I have no fear of being bit, that snake has no fear that would make it want to bite me. Now we could share that moment and then it would continue on. Like where, how do you quantify that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. It's beautiful. And you know, like you could never have that, that experience in virtual reality. Because even though you were not in a state of fear, you knew that this is for real. Like it could bite you, you know, and maybe you'd die or maybe it would just hurt. But in VR, nothing hurts. Like there's no kinetic or very little of a kinetic experience. You can't simulate kinesthetic experience, really. It's, yeah, it's the not, best vibration technology right. in your bodysuit. It's not the same it's thing. It's not the same as falling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I was going to go into some nerdy thing about general relativity, but, um, and why you can't simulate it. But, um, so, so if you are in VR and you have a virtual reality water moccasin come and rest its head on your knee, there's some part of you that's going to be saying this isn't real. Like there's, and this, this is what generates a kind of a cynicism that reaches an extreme form when people are immersed in virtual realities, um, in the metaverse, you know, in, in just social media and so forth. I mean, that's one reason why they're so nasty to each other. Like face-to-face, people are not usually that rude, you know, because it's, it's, it's a real person here. So there's this air of unreality th- that it's always been here um, to the extent that we are immersed in symbols and representations and um, images, personas, you know. But it, it's an extreme form online and, and in the digital reality. But underneath the cynicism, there's an intense longing to break through. And yeah, like you just, like we want that kind of experience. People in modern life, they want it so bad that they, they, that given whatever is available, they will create it. Hence, and I don't want to oversimplify things here, but you know, domestic violence, like we produce the dramas that we've escaped from in some other form. Yeah. Most, most like bees, like wasps, if I, if I, if I stay really calm and friendly, they almost never sting. Um, 
Scorpions are the exception, though. They're just <laughs> that's, mean. That's the one yeah. thing. That's the one. <laughs> it doesn't thing matter. I said. They're like, yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah. I told this story to a few people at yeah. the farm, and I was like, and I don't know. I'm not about to say that I could do that with a scorpion. If nope. a fucking scorpion walked on my leg, I'd be like, God, get off me! Like right. instantaneous reflex. Right. You know, there wouldn't yeah. be any of this. We're, we're one. I'm cool. I'm in your house. Yeah. Thank you for letting me be here. None of that shit. No, nope, they're there to sting. <laughs> they're there to sting people. Sharks, though, they won't like if you stay really yeah. calm. Sharks usually won't bite you. Yeah, thinking about the uh, those experiences in nature. You talked about just 30 minutes in the forest is enough to reset you. You know, and it is the things you're not accounting for. Like, I there's a spot uh, by our house in Austin where they made, um, where, you know, we're in a suburb and then behind it, they have a big industrial complex. And in between it, there's um, a green belt with a little creek. And they use that, you know, there's ponds and stuff to filter water before it goes back to the Colorado. And they made a uh, disc golf course out of it. And it's a cool spot because it's like I've been walking there as they were developing it. I played there with my son, but it's mostly just fun to go out and walk through the woods because there's still a lot of trees and there's this cool little forbidden forest, we call it. And you see- How how old are your sons? My son is seven now and Uh our daughter's going to be two on 4th of July. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And she's, you know, they're never happy. Like the backyard's cool, but it's, you know, it's a joke. It's not nature. It's like our little man-made sandbox. Mm -hmm. Um, But actually getting outside, like it's, it's the things that we're not, expecting you know you see like a mexican eagle fly by with this white face and this cool right. beak or the um there's some cooper's hawks that live back there and i don't always get to see them so when i do it's like a real treat and it's and it's odd almost when i see them it's usually when there's an aha moment i'll hear the 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 hawk cry out and i'm mm-hmm. like what the fuck like what is this timed like what's going mm-hmm. on right now you know, but it's almost that, that in a sense is, is what I call the God nod. It's right. like the, the external affirmation of a truth that stumbled upon, you know, where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. All right. Yeah. And you were saying before something about that, that I thought about a lot too. Like when you have everything under control, there's no room for synchronicity to happen. Cause, cause like everything's already under control. Like there's, there's, it's already programmed, you know, which is why a lot of people experience the most synchronicity when they're in a state of transition or instability in life where everything's not predictable anymore. Like you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You move to a new city without a plan. You know, you, you land somewhere with no plan. You walk out of a relationship, maybe an abusive relationship with, you don't know what, where, where you're going to land you don't know if you're going to be okay. Like those are the kind of releases of control that attract synchronicities, which, which confirm that there's intelligence in the world beyond our own, which means that human progress need not be to impose our intelligence onto a world that doesn't have any. If we, if we recognize that there's an intelligence beyond ourselves, then we can embark on a different course of progress, which is to listen more and more deeply to that intelligence and participate in it. And then we become capable of creation way beyond what we can do through controlling things. And like, so this is, comes up like really practically in, in health and healing. Like there's a certain amount of security 
you can get by controlling more and more about your environment, about your body. But miracle level healing, which I mean, I'm sure you've run into this kind of thing a lot, you know, where like something medically incurable, like disappears instantaneously and stuff. You can't make that happen. It has to, you have to, to step into a reality in which it happens. Imagine what, what our civilization could be if we really accepted that we don't have to be in control of everything. Yeah, it's such a big one. Thinking of the uh, control versus the, the surrender almost through circumstance. But like the, it, another way I look at that is the, the I've got it all figured out mm -hmm. versus returning to a state of wonder. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you're in wonder, you don't know, but you're accepting the fact that you don't know. There's almost like a humility that takes place in, in letting go of any prefabricated idea of, that you have about the future. And in that, then synchronicity becomes available. But when you've got everything figured out, then it doesn't happen that way, which is often more times than not, disappointment happens, you know? And it's, 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 I look for things that return me to that state of wonder and awe. I look for that's, and that's where I will experience that in nature. I'll experience that with the, the water moccasin or anything else, even just playing with my kids and paddle boarding up to some baby frogs and watching mm -hmm. my little girl's expression when she sees a little baby frog. And she's like, mm -hmm. frog, 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 you know, yeah. just going crazy. Yeah. Um, I think the, the tendency for people when we get into our own routine and, and systems and design of exactly how everything's going to be, we forget that it's, it's more critical than ever to return to those states of freshness and youthfulness. Mm -hmm. It's like a homecoming too. As a, as, a, as a civilization, we've alienated ourselves um, conceptually by thinking that we're the only intelligence, the only full consciousness, but also materially, you know, by living in a built environment that is unnatural. And the more we go into a digital realm, the more alien we are. And to recognize that, that we're not the only intelligence, it's like we're not alone here anymore. You know, we're, we're, we're like one with creation. We're part of the family of creation. We're, we're, we're in constant communication with beings. Like every culture besides our own believed in or believes in the beingness of the world. Kind of like a child, you know, like if you say to a child, the sun is looking at you right now, it totally makes sense. Like to our own childlike mind, it makes sense. We understand that. But then science says, no, the sun isn't looking. It's only a ball of fusing <laughs> hydrogen gas, um, which actually is ignorant of the incredibly complex structure of the sun, like these electromagnetic, electromagnetic fluxes, you know, and, and, stable structures and metastable structures. I mean, it's actually, it's actually quite rational to think that the sun is a being. But anyway, we've been told that it's not, right? That we're the only being. And like, there's this disappointment that it's like that uh, Super Tramp song. Do the one, um, the logical song. Oh, I'm trying to think of it. When I, I was young, a lot of them. Yeah. life was so beautiful, magical, like, and the birds in the trees, like, like it's singing. And then like he speaks of, like he's living in this magical world where the birds are speaking to him. 
And then the betrayal happens. He's sent to school. They, they um, taught me how to be logical, you know, and, and this, the living, his, his um, experience of the wonder and the livingness and the, the aliveness of all things was, was brutally cut off. Like that speaks so deeply to me. And um, I'm not sure how, I think like the, like earlier you spoke of like the awakening. I mean, definitely embracing the reality of death is part of the the journey back. Um, But for me, it's mostly been like unexpected, undeserved interventions by like the reality that we're keeping out and denying. It's, it's not always unfriendly, you know, it actually loves us and is constantly trying to give us the gift of awakening to, to our at-homeness here. And we're keeping it out. But sometimes it breaks through anyway. Yeah, Dr. Will Tegel, who recently passed away, he he spoke about that. The and the he worded it differently, but it reminds me of Paul Check. Talk, Paul Check talks about the pain teacher. The pain teacher gives you a whisper, then a knock at the door, then we'll kick down the door eventually if you keep ignoring it. Mm-hmm. And um, that Mother Nature is doing the same, basically, to awaken us to a greater degree of understanding, um, not through you know the the climate narrative per se, but just through the way that our interactions with the natural disasters, the, the, the droughts, the storms, all these things. And obviously there, that is as above, so below what we're doing to farming and everything like that plays a big role in that. But, um, I like the way he put it because he's, he, he spoke about this internal GPS system of the earth, the internal GPS system of, of each being the internal GPS system of the solar system and beyond as this guiding force. And that's always moving. And it's moving through us. It's moving through the earth. It's moving through uh, everything you can see. And I think of the, there is beauty in knowing that, but there's also a beauty in, in trying to live that and trying to fall into that state of flow with it and not, not be so caught up with, with whatever, you know, sky is falling type scenario. So there was one thing that, I, there's a few things, but one, one of the things that I wanted to bring up from the coronation was um, an essay you had done that I think you had asked your wife, what could medicine look like in the more beautiful world? And I just loved it. I thought it was incredible, her response. Do you remember? I don't remember. Um, no, I don't remember what she said. <laughs> I don't remember what, what I said. I think I got it here. Let me see. All right. Yeah, let's try to find that. Is it from Beyond Industrial Medicine? Yes. Yeah. Beyond Industrial that was one of my favorite, favorite essays. So good. Yeah. Yeah. So you asked your wife, Stella, an extremely effective healer, what she thinks healthcare could become. She said, we recognize mind and body as a continuum. We don't see illness as a random misfortune. We know that resonant attention and the holding of space for emergent wholeness can heal and that anyone can do this. We can return medicine to the people. Yeah. 
a lot of the uh, alternative modalities, as they're called, at, at, at base, draw from the understanding that of an intelligence in the body and in the world. And it's like, if you make space for that intelligence to operate, then it will carry you toward wholeness, which usually will look like what we conventionally think of as health, but it might not. Like maybe the intelligence carries you to the other side. Uh, but usually, you know, like Stella, like most people who come in to see Stella, they walk out um, healed. And it's not like she's doing anything. Like she's not like fixing and moving things around like a surgeon, but on an energetic level. She's really like holding attention um, in a very specific way so that maybe a process that had been interrupted can resume um, so that that different parts of the body can begin communicating with each other again and the intelligence that emerges from that communication can operate. It's that kind of thing. But even like something like homeopathy draws from the same basic principle of like, okay, here's whatever malady you have corresponds to a substance in the world that if you ingest it will provide the information that is required to catalyze the healing process or to, to like it brings in missing information. So yeah, that's, that's a general, my general understanding of what health could be, which doesn't exclude conventional medicine. Like, I just think it's that, that the role of that kind of medicine would be less and less and less. I mean, half of healthcare spending uh, happens in the last six months of life in this country. So maybe like just accepting that death is not the ultimate medical failure. That would go a long way to transforming our system. But a lot of the, so, so, you know, modern medicine actually can also perform miracles. Like if you have, you know, if you're in a car crash, you know, if a traumatic injury um, burns over 90% of your body and so, and so forth, like it can, there are like emergency medicine. I think it is, it can perform miracles. Other kinds of medicine can also. Um, I know a woman who, um, like a, a car door got slammed on her thumb and like so hard that the door closed all the way. Oh. <laughs> and she screams and they open the door and it's just like dangling there, you know, from like, oh, man. and she like goes into this meditation state and a minute later, the thumb is completely healed as if it had never happened. And um, yeah, like, like, so that kind of thing can happen. Okay, I don't want to exclude that and say that modern medicine is the only way to deal with traumatic injuries. I mean, I've, I've you know, heard stories of people like getting run over by a car and completely unharmed. And the people watching say, I thought I saw the car disappear and reappear or your leg disappear and reappear as the car ran over it. Like shit like that happens, you know? So I don't want to like, you know, this is the thing, like 
to lay down the objective absolute truth and modern medicine, emergency medicine is good for this and that's good for that. And like, this is part of the domestication of reality. Not that it's that it's okay to do that, but we got to understand that the mystery is a lot bigger than the categories that we can impose upon the world. This is part of the program of control. That's essentially what science is. It's to attach numbers to everything and to describe mathematical laws that operate upon those numbers. That's what scientific, it's, it's quantitative. That's the essence of what science is. It's the study of the, of the measurable. The, and it's fine to do that as long as we don't fall into the metaphysical doctrine underlying science, which is that everything real is measurable. And if, it, if you can't measure it, it's not real. And therefore, we can colonize the entire universe with our numbers and our labels and our categories. That, that's, that gets, in, gets us into trouble. Because then we exclude all the things that we can't categorize, that we can't label, that we can't measure, and that therefore can never be put into the virtual reality metaverse either. You can't turn it into zeros and ones and bits and bytes, then you can never simulate it. So the question then is metaphysical. Can we simulate everything? And We've tried, but I don't think we can. No. Yeah, I think there's zero chance there. Um, one of the things that you bring up is, you know, amongst many of the of the things that should be solved, right, from, from all the advancements that we've made, uh, you talk about depression and SSRIs, and obviously you don't paint it, you know, one particular way. Um, but, well, I kind of do paint it one particular but I mean, way, but, but I mean, ex yeah. expand upon that because yeah. I think this is such an important piece for people and, and having gone down the rabbit hole of extreme depression, attempted suicide, uh, hooked on every benzo diazepam that was made available to me and they were all made available to me, that nothing was ever solved in doing that. You know, I was able to, to numb and put life on pause and continue to move through the, the, the matrix but there was no healing that took place there. And all the anxiety and, and guilt and shame and, and depression that I had from before was just there waiting for me in the fucking closet when I got off that stuff. Mm -hmm. Process had to take place. And like authentic um, inventory of what my life had been and why I was upset with it and what I wanted to do going forward. That had to take place in order for me to move through that and not carry it with me. The idea that we can do patchwork on a sinking ship by throwing pills at it um, that again points to the, and I think, you know, one of the things that you're providing here is there are benefits to surgery and things like that. I had shoulder surgery for a torn labrum. Um, I went without surgery for six months and my arms started, I started punching my arm out of the socket training. And I was like, this is actually pretty serious. I should get surgery. Not having the Dr. Strange technique your thumbless friend did. Right. Right. Um, so I loved it for that. Uh, but the flip side of that, you know, mental health, uh, wellness, health care, sick care, that, that, that did nothing for me. It did absolutely nothing for me. And it's not to say that it doesn't do some things for some people, but um, yeah, that was a bad rabbit hole. Well, it sounds like you have a lot more, uh, I mean, genuine authority to speak on this than I do. But 
I mean, I can definitely say, I call depression uh, the mutiny of the soul. So here's a life that is offered to you. Here's what you're supposed to be living, Kyle. Here's how you're supposed to be a man. Here's the goals you're supposed to have. Here's how to do it. Here's your box. And some part of you is like, no, I refuse. I will refuse to get up in the morning to live this life. I will, no matter what the rewards and threats, I will procrastinate. Uh, I will stop eating. I will continue eating when I'm not hungry. Like that, that's depression. It's like a withdrawal from being alive. Is that a problem? From the perspective of this is the well-adjusted person's well-adjusted life that you should be living, yes, it's a problem. But if that is not the life that you're supposed to be living, then that withdrawal is actually a sign of spiritual health. So if you, as you were saying, throw pills at it, what you're trying to do is make the wrong life still tolerable to live. And then the, what the brain does is like, hold on, I'm not supposed to be happy right now, but there's all the serotonin that's making me happy, so I better downregulate the serotonin receptors. Then you need to up the dose. And that happens again and again. And eventually when you, so it messes you up in various ways. And then when you go off those medications, then you're so downregulated that you just go through hell. And if you look at, um, one time I saw a, a database of like mass shootings that listed the drug that the person was on or had recently gotten off, the psychiatric drug. I mean, it was astonishing, like, like page after page after page of these mass murderers and murder suicides that were on one of these drugs. So it's not easy. Like you don't get social support for accepting the message of depression. In another society, it might have been, oh, it's time for you to go and meditate in the cave. It's time for you to go on a walkabout because maybe the, the life that you've been living is not yours anymore to live. And we have space for that. But our society doesn't have space for that. Like socially, economically, you know, we don't support that. So, you know, if you take our society as we know it for granted, then maybe these SSRIs are a good thing, you know? Like if you take it for granted that this is the right life to, for a human being to live, and if, you're, if you can't do it, then you're maladjusted, but we can adjust you. We can help you. It's just a little off with the chemistry. Right. So, and, and, you know, I mean, a lot of the psychiatric profession, they are well rewarded. They have a very high status in the system. So they have a buy-in into validating its legitimacy. And, and for them to say, to a depressed person, there's actually nothing wrong with you. What's wrong is our entire society. They're indicting themselves too because they're, they have a role in the entire society, in the system that gives them so much prestige. So it's, it's, it's rare. There are some renegade psychiatrists out there and, and especially renegade psychologists. Um, but there's not a lot of support. And, and if you want to... Um, heal the depression, 
then there are like on one level, there's like alternatives to the meds. Like you could do Kundalini yoga, for example, that can be really powerful. Um, or some kind of psychedelic therapy. But if you're using those in the same mindset as a pill, going to try to keep everything else the same and just do this one thing, then ultimately it isn't going to work. These, but, but these um, other practices can be a way, can be like an, uh, um, a portal to the transformation of your entire life. That's what they're there for, actually. But they're not, in and of themselves, they won't do anything. If there's not a willingness to let go of something yeah, and to step into the unknown. Yeah, the, the yeah. trap of, of doing what you're told, the trap of taking everything at face value. You talk about that with um, depression and the lives that were given or told to, to lead. You talk about it with... Monsanto and glyphosate with, you know, modern agriculture, right. like that's already starting upon, like there's plenty of good arguments for right. glyphosate and the controlling of the food system. If we're taking this as the standard of care, the standard of food. Right. Production. If we're assuming, if we're assuming monocrop mechanized agriculture, then you do need something like glyphosate. You can't just keep everything else the same and no glyphosate. You can't keep everything else the same and no pill. Like if you want to stop using glyphosate, then you're going to have to transition to smaller scale, ecologically diverse, um, localized farms and, and a food system. Like everything has to change. It's not like the, you know, farmers who use Monsanto and the chemists who develop it, who develop Roundup are stupid or evil. Like that is one of the biggest obstacles we have to changing the system is to diagnose the problem as evil people. That's the same mindset as diagnosing Ill, Ill health by a virus or diagnosing ecological collapse by one. Not that, you know, greenhouse gas emissions have no role to play, not that viruses don't exist and have no role to play, but it's the terrain and, and the entirety of the system that makes us sick. And yeah, so like the, so the same thing with the SSRIs. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that. That's that's kind of where I was trying to go with it. Yeah, yeah it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, well, I might switch gears here. I want to talk, obviously, you're going to be speaking at Arcadia. Um, Aubrey did a great podcast with you that was supposedly just going to be released to his supercast, and then he ended up releasing that to everybody because it was so awesome. You talked a lot about what the more beautiful world would look like from a financial standpoint. But I'm curious to know... Um, when you think of the big ticket items, and maybe they'll be more discussed at this conference you're heading to, what do those look like? You know, we'll, we'll link to the, the podcast you did with Aubrey in the show notes on, on finance and, of course, sacred economics. We'll link to that fantastic fucking book, one of my favorites. Um, you, you're, you and your wife kind of tandem on what healthcare could look like in the more beautiful world. What are some of the other things that, that, are kind of looming in the distance where, you know, one path leads us there and one path leads us astray. I mean, I'd like to think about what various institutions look like in the next, the next world, the next story, the more beautiful world. And sometimes I can see like little 
foreshadowings of it. Um, like what would policing look like, you know, when it's not about the state imposing its will through the threat of violence um, and locking people up if they cause a problem. Like if you keep everything else, I, I wrote a comment on some, some Substack post about this. Like it was talking about the failure of San Francisco's super tolerant um, policing. Like they're like, okay, we're not gonna, we're not gonna arrest people for misdemeanors, you know, shoplifting and stuff like that. Because after all, like, you know, they're they're not evil. You know, they don't deserve to be incarcerated. They're they're doing this because of the, of their circumstances. Fine, but what happened was like this this outbreak of petty theft. You know, where stores were going were like losing money, like. People didn't feel safe. You know, people were breaking into cars all over the place. You know, it wasn't working. And that's because they were, at least they weren't just treating the symptom, but they weren't treating the cause either. Like if you leave the cause in place, then you better treat the symptom. So in order to, to transition out of that, you would have to remove the causes of crime. So, like, that's the thing, like, about, like, the whole defund the police thing. I'm like, yeah, that would be a great idea if we remove the reasons why we need police to begin with. So, I not think... Not a good idea right now. <laughs> no. Not, not at all a good idea right now. No, but, but you know, the police are, I, I think, in an unenviable situation. Like, it's like we've created a situation where crime is inevitable. And then we punish people for committing crimes. So let's change that situation. And in that changed situation where um, the, the, not all the causes of crime, like I think, you know, all societies have people who violate the taboos and harm others, and they have processes to deal with that. But a lot of the scarcity and trauma of our society is not necessary. You know, that's what generates crime. Uh, we have incredible artificial scarcity. Like, there is no material lack of the means to subsist on this earth. We waste 40% of our food. We devote millions and millions of hectares to lawn grass. Like, there are so many ways that we could be in incredible abundance if we distributed, I mean, if we didn't, you know, pour hundreds of billions of dollars into weapons. You know, I mean, like, abundance is right here for us. Stone Age hunter-gatherers had more abundance than we have in terms of leisure time, you know, in terms of, of basic security. So anyway, I, I don't need to make that point, but um, we changed the, 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 the ground conditions. And then what did police become? So maybe they're the person who they're the ones who get involved when they see a conflict brewing and they're highly trained in um, de-escalation and their job performance is rated on how many arrests they avoid, not how many arrests they make. And they're somebody who is very practiced in non-judgment so that they can hear both sides of a dispute and hold center. And like, I mean, and maybe sometimes they protect somebody by force. You know, when somebody really loses their shit and is harming somebody. So
So like you can imagine, like I can, like you can sometimes we catch glimpses of what it could be. Uh, I'm not sure if this is what you were getting out. Yeah, the question. No, this is great. This yeah. is, it is, it's totally different direction, but it is something yeah. that is critical, you know? It's a, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I asked the same question about, you know, our economic structures, money, uh, the military even. Um, yeah. I don't have a, a, a blueprint for the future, you know? I don't have a plan. Like long ago, I disabused myself of the idea that the solution will come when somebody comes up with such a brilliant plan that everybody decides that they're going to follow that plan. Like I, I remember having a um, conversation with some parliamentarians in uh, South Africa a number of years ago, a couple guys, you know, and they were like, Charles, we agree with everything you say, but in parliament, it's useless. There's the opposition party, you know, there's the lobbyists, there's the regulatory agencies, there's the courts, there's this, there's that. We can't do anything other than what we are doing with very narrow leeway. Talk to a corporate executive, he'll say the same thing. Talk to a politician, talk to, like people are very much trapped in the roles that they occupy. And that's why I decided that the, that the systems change will not happen through engineering primarily through re-engineering the system, through a bunch of smart guys getting together, usually they're guys, you know, and coming up with the plan. And here we came up with the plan. We're the smart guys who came up with the plan. So everybody, you know, go along with it. At the G7 council meeting. <laughs> yeah. But in the alternative spaces, it happens too. Yeah. You know, these solutioneers. Yeah. And I decided it's not, you know, the, the, the new systems will arise out of a, of a shift in consciousness. And so how do, and I'm not, yeah, I mean, that's from, you know, each, each of us has a role to play in the human evolution. And so for me, it's, it's about changing the underlying narratives, the deep mythologies that I've been talking to you a lot about, but it's not just, you know, and I'm good with words, right? But that change can happen through the way you look at people. It can happen through your acts of kindness and care. Um, it can happen through your parenting that maybe has a bigger impact on a 500-year time scale than anything else that you do. It can happen through the care that you give to animals and plants and soil. Like all of these, the work you do in healing people, um, in gathering communities, in adding more beauty to the world. Like all of these things are part of a consciousness of which the new story is one shell. And the new systems are even on top of that shell. I love that. Um, one last question I want to leave you with, and you can take it as long as you want when I'm not on a time crunch. Um, you talk about the oscillation that you've had over the last couple of years from knowing you know, the, the, the narrative has been busted. We have enough people that have woken up. The, the, the systems and seeds have been planted for more beautiful systems. Um, that's already there. And then that oscillates back over to, no, not enough people have woken up. The narrative is still strong. No one's going to stop this machine that's moving, uh, yep. marching us right off the cliff. Talk a little bit about that oscillation. It's something that I've 
lived deeply in the last two years. Yeah, I'm aware that was kind of your first question. I never really answered it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was a real trip for me, COVID. Uh, and I went through some periods of pretty intense darkness where like, you know, my nightmare was coming true of a totalitarian uh, high-tech surveillance state as civil liberties were suspended and people willingly um, accepted it and, and defaulted to the most fear-based orthodoxy and forgot the last 40 years of alternative health and, and you know, people I considered deep allies denounced me, you know, like it got kind of personal. Um, and yeah, there were times where like the hardest part, what, like, so on one level, it was like watching this unfold and not even wanting to leave my house because it was so dystopian to see everybody masked up. Um, but then also, I, I, I was like, well, what if, what if I'm wrong? What if the masks are necessary and they are saving lives? And what if the people denouncing me are right that I'm killing grandmothers by, you know, questioning the COVID orthodoxy? And like, how do I know that I'm right about these things? Maybe I should trust the science. So like these doubts really got inside. And I, I spent months and months not writing anything because I wanted to be clear, wanted to be sure that what I was saying was true. And ultimately, I found that, like at one point I found that I was even doubting my own direct experiences. Like, and I realized at some point, hold on, that's not healthy. That's not sane. If, how, do you, how, do you, how do you orient in this world? Like, how do you know what to trust? If, if not your own direct experiences, not my interpretations of my experiences, but like things I actually experienced firsthand. Like, for example, healing that science couldn't explain and other phenomena that science couldn't explain. Am I going to call myself a liar to myself for having experienced those? Like, that's gaslighting. Gaslighting is, is you convince somebody that the real thing that they saw isn't real. I was doing that to myself at one point, And I'm like, hold on here. I'm going to trust what I've directly experienced. At least I have then a solid foundation. And, and uh, you know, from there, I was able to, to rebuild um, my belief system with a lot more certainty. And that's when I started, or when I resumed speaking out as a dissident. Um, but yeah, it was, I, I went through a pretty dark night of the soul to get to that. Like I came out early on with a lot of dissident stuff before people were that polarized, you know? And so there was a, quite a big audience for what I was saying, but then, you know, the um, denunciation started and, and that self-doubt began to operate. And then, so I really took a long time off. And then when I came out and started writing about mob morality and all that, I was a lot more solid. And, you know, I got, canceled a lot and stuff. Um, but it didn't get in as deep as it had before. Yeah, it's a big one. I'm just, I'm blown away. So it's such a similar experience, not from the mm -hmm. cancellation standpoint. Uh, thankfully, I've 
a great boss, <laughs> that kind of thing. And um, didn't have to worry about that podcast, those kind of things. But um, one thing that gave me the strength to speak out was a guy like JP Sears, who had such a massive following, you know, and he was like, yeah, I lost quite a few people following, but I gained that many more people that were seeking the truth, mm-hmm. you know? And um, seeing, you know, someone like you, I've followed for years. It's like, oh, awesome. I'm not insane. Right. You know, like there's that, that big, there's a big thing. There is strength in numbers and understanding that the, of course, more has come out, you know, you read the real Anthony Fauci, things like that. I mean, there's well-documented stuff, Dr. Peter McCullough, guys like that, that verify a lot of the the hunches or early on science right. that we were privy to that was largely swept away from the narrative. But um, yeah, the, uh, the hardest part for me too was the questioning my own experiences and questioning uh, the, the whole of reality, you know, and it, it very much was a dark night of the soul. But I'm, I'm privileged and, and ecstatic anytime I get to be in your presence. Um, I loved the, the conversation you gave to the group at Fit for Service out mm. in Texas last year on trusting that real experience, trusting what that, the feeling of that hug, how much that means, how important mm. it is to be gathered here in community. Mm-hmm. And those are the truths that I lean on, you know, the mm-hmm. truth of the snake in yep. the pond, the truth of the gathering, the fire pit. Um, that is a great, it is the foundation to build things off of. Mm-hmm. So I deeply appreciate you, brother. Thank yeah, you for thank you, Kyle. On. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone check out the Coronation Essays from the COVID moment. Uh, you can pre-order now, I believe. Yeah. Yep. Pre- yeah. Pre-orders there. Are you going to do an audible for that? I know yeah, I just actually, I, I recorded it myself, actually. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's the audio version will be good too. Hell yeah. Yeah. I'm pumped for that. Where can people yeah. find you online? Where can people stay in touch with you? Most of my um, recent stuff I publish on Substack. Charles Eisenstein.substack. Cool. Yeah. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, yeah. brother. Yeah. Thanks, Kyle.